Hello, and welcome to Ask a Physical Therapist. I'm your host, Dr. Tannis Kitchener, coming at you from Carbondale, Colorado on KDNK. Joining me today for a part two on pain science is Dr. Tom Walters. He's also a doctor of physical therapy, specializes in biomechanics, pain science, and general education. He just released his first book called Rehab Science, How to Overcome Pain and Heal from Injury. Welcome back, Tom. Thank you. Thanks for, ha- thanks for having me back. Excited to dive into part two. Awesome. So if any of the lis- listeners, excuse me out there, have missed part one, you can always go back and listen to it on demand. We had some really great content in there. We might have a little bit of overflow, but generally we'll be kind of building on the foundation of pain science we created and chat about actually how we treat it. So last episode, Tom and I talked a little bit about the difference between acute pain and chronic pain. Acute pain is something that generally is going to resolve as the injured or damaged tissue heals, right? So there's a finite timeline. The timeline might vary depending on the tissue and your activity, but generally the pain goes down as the tissue is healing. Fair enough, Tom? Exactly. Yes, exactly. There's kind of a more direct relationship um, with the time kind of matching up with that more obvious injury, like we talked about last time, maybe like an ankle sprain where it, it fits together. And so then if we describe acute pain that way, how would you describe chronic pain? Yeah, so really the big thing here, uh, you know, it can be tricky sometimes because people can have these, you know, acute, the word acute tends to make us think about time, right, that it's happened relatively recently. And it can be tricky because sometimes these acute or maybe a better term is uh, mechanical pain or nociceptive pain. Last time we talked about nociceptors and these nerve endings that transmit danger, um, nociceptive or mechanical pain can last longer. We know most tissues in the body will heal in that three to six month window, but you could have a very mechanical pain. Uh, you know, maybe you had a, um, something like a tennis elbow, maybe you had a tendinopathy, uh, and it's created tennis elbow pain on the outside elbow. Well, that could go on for longer if you keep aggravating it. And so, the fact that it's gone on for more time doesn't necessarily now make it chronic, even though if you look at most chronic pain definitions, they will say that it's kind of like, oh, you've had pain for more than three to six months. So we try to help people figure out that acute or mechanical pain, usually you identify that by seeing that it's, it's got very clear on-off switches. It's aggravated with certain activities or certain positions. It goes away if you stop doing those things. It kind of stays in the same region. It has kind of the same symptoms. Whereas a chronic pain, you know, it has that time component, of course, like it's been around for a long time, but it also is less mechanical. It's unpredictable. It doesn't turn on and off easily with the same, it's not repeatable in that way where you can turn it on and off with the exact same positions and activities. Maybe it spreads or it becomes, the area becomes larger. So that, I think people have got to take all those kind of variables to kind of figure out what category of pain they fall into. And you and I know that there's also acute on chronic pain or recurrent pain. So it's not always cut and dry, but it's helpful when you're looking at a treatment protocol to kind of differentiate, is this more mechanical slash acute, if we're kind of merging those two loosely, or is it become more chronic and more what we call central sensitization, uh, which we'll get into some of the specifics here in a moment. We also talked in part one about the fact that 
the perception or interpretation of pain is in the brain. So it's a threat appraisal. So pain is a decision by the brain based on a perception of a threat where you have nociceptive nerves that transmit signals regarding temperature, chemicals, mechanical input, and your brain assigns a value to it and decides whether that's going to be a painful stimulus or not. So pain is not designated on a specific fiber, nerve fiber. It's all integrated in the brain. Exactly. People have got to really remember that pain, 100% of the time we've seen in the research now, is an output of the brain based on all those inputs. And like you said, appraising the situation and deciding if pain is an appropriate output. I just saw a fantastic correlation, again, by Adrian Lowe. This is how he correlated what our what our brain does with pain. He said, um, you do not see with your eyes. Your vision does not come from your eyes. Your eyes have light receptors in it that then send the vision back to the back of your brain or the image that then our brain has to flip and integrate and we actually have sight through our brain. Um, Same with with hearing. We don't hear through our ears. We have vibration sensors in our ears that transmit nerve signals through nerves to our brain and our brain interprets it as a sound, which is where tinnitus comes from, but that's a whole separate thing. So not to say that you couldn't have lack of sight because of something local in that tissue. Those receptors are 100% necessary for vision and for hearing, but it's all interpreted in the brain. Yeah, I think those are great examples and helpful for people to, you know, because the pain thing can be a little abstract. So thinking about it with those other senses, I think is really helpful if people understand. You have, you've got these receptors that are relaying information that still has to go into your brain and your brain has to integrate that information to create those experiences, you know, and pain is an experience like those other ones. The other thing that I think about is folks who have tissue damage or things that you would 100% think would cause pain and they don't experience pain. So yeah. say you, you twist your ankle while you're hiking badly, it's going to hurt. You twist your ankle in the middle of the road and you look up and there's a bus coming at you. It's probably not going to hurt so bad while you run out of the road. Like you're going to be able to manage mm-hmm. without the perception of pain because there's a larger threat. Yeah, it's really interesting. I think you see it a lot in sport. I uh, grew up doing martial arts and uh, really like to watch the UFC. And you see this often with fighters that when they're in the middle of a fight, they can have a fracture. I've seen compound dislocations or the bone, stuff on toe, compound dislocation pop out. The person didn't even know that it happened in the fight. It wasn't until they went back to their corner and sat down and back in sort of a safe environment where their body could kind of assess things, but then they realized they had an injury and started feeling pain. Mm. So our brain is really good at, you know, we have different, you know, we can talk about different mechanisms to kind of turn nociception down and basically prevent a pain, pain experience from happening if it's not helpful to us in that moment where we need to, you know, because again, it's about survival. So you don't want to, like you said, if you're out in the middle of the road and a bus is about hit you, you don't want to create pain there because then you you reduce likelihood that you're going to survive because you get hit by the bus. And also the martial art thing that you were talking about, it's not just the adrenaline dump. So there's some research where they have found um, in these certain instances, if you injure yourself in a stressful environment, your risk of developing chronic pain is eightfold. Okay, so I found my resource that I talked about in part one. And these are the experiences because they are stressful. So you're living at that higher threshold of stress, combat, surgery, car accident, um, work, and an abusive situation where there's also emotional components, a sense of not being safe, trauma, 
injury during those instances, your risk of developing chronic pain versus having an acute episode that the pain goes away once your mechanical injury is healed is eightfold. But kids that play contact sports early in life experience less chronic pain later later in life. And we can kind of pick that apart in a moment. And then this goes back to folks who have injuries and don't feel a whole lot of pain at first. And it's beyond the adrenaline dump, I think it has to do with how your nervous system is integrating it as a whole. Um, They did a study on demolition derby drivers. So you and I have seen so many whiplash injuries, I'm sure, where people are in a minor fender bender up to 25 miles an hour, and they end up with quite a significant impairment with neck pain. Um, And so these people are in up to 50 crashes per night at an average speed of collision of 25 miles per hour. And in their career, they they can do up to 30 events. So that equals like 1,500 possible whiplash experiences. And in this study, out of 40 demolition derby drivers they interviewed, only one had chronic neck pain a year later. Yeah, I think it speaks so much to the impact of meaning, what something means to us, you know. So if you have a positive, if, if that participating in that activity means something positive to you, and we've seen this in tons of studies, like you said, with combat athletes, um, individuals, uh, tri- um, like endurance athletes, triathletes, marathon runners. When it has a positive meaning, it doesn't carry the same risk of creating this chronic pain state. It, it changes how you integrate the information, the hormones that are released. It, it, it totally changes the system when you assign. It means something positive to you. Uh, you see that right with childbirth, right? Like that has a positive meaning to it, even though it's a really traumatic tissue thing in many cases. And then most people, it doesn't turn into some chronic pain issue. Right. You see this culturally too, right? In cultures where they have rites of passage, fire walking. Um, you know, in the Philippines, they do an Easter crucifixion, a voluntary Easter crucifixion. And, and those things carry the meaning of it uh, is important and it's positive. And because of that, it's not, it's, it, the system doesn't think of it as a, as a threat, it, it, so it, which means they end up, you don't see these kind of chronic pain things develop from those behaviors. Do you think that kids playing contact sports or um, just sports and athletics in general where they experience musculoskeletal pain that heals, do you see that being a positive thing as far as decreasing risk of chronic pain later in life? Big time. I've talked about this before. I grew up doing judo, and I, look, that's my anecdotal experience, but I think we have research to support this too, that, you know, when you are engaging in something like that, um, I think it helps to desensitize the system when you have that kind of repeated physical stress to the body and you are, again, you're, you're participating in something that's positive to you and, you know, your body encounters these threatening stimuli, but it's associated with something positive in terms of how you think about it. Because I think we see that with uh, martial artists and lots of studies in endurance athletes um, where they can actually, their system, their pain tolerance threshold is higher because of how they train. Mm -hmm. And on the flip side, we see kids who are in the NICU. And, um, you know, my daughter was in the NICU for 12 days when she was first born. And kids who are exposed to lots of noxious, threatening stimuli like needles and IVs when they're babies, ultimately a lot of times have more sensitive nervous systems, lower 
pain perception threshold, then a person who's not exposed to that. So I think, but if you imagine that situation, you're a baby and you're, people are, you're in a scary environment and you're getting things stuck into you, that doesn't carry that same kind of positive meaning. So I do think there's a lot of value in things later on that expose your system to threat, but in a positive way. Mm. So it's not just having a sense of pain that then you realize it passes. So you're developing the cognitive awareness that pain can come and go and experiencing pain doesn't mean that you're going to have pain forever. It's deeper than that. It's more about the context of the pain you're experiencing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I that think that's a huge, a huge part of it, yeah. So in somebody who's had the experience that your daughter's had, or just, well, actually, let me back up. I just want to explain pain pressure threshold real quick. Can you give a, a kind of quick down and dirty of what that is and how that helps us in our studies? Yeah, so um, pain perception threshold, there's kind of two. There's pain perception threshold and pain tolerance threshold, and the easiest way to study these that people can probably imagine is putting your hand in a bucket of ice water. And so we used to do this at the college I taught at in physiology lab. We would test this on people and you just basically stick your hand in and hold it as long as you can. And the moment you start to feel pain is your pain perception threshold. But people will understand out there that you can still stay there longer. Most of us can tolerate that discomfort for some amount of time past that. So that first moment is your pain perception threshold. And then when you can't stand it anymore and you have to take your hand out of the water, that's your pain tolerance threshold. And so we really see that, like I said, in training and sports, and um, sports are one of the easiest study athletes who push that pain tolerance. They really push into pain. And endurance athletes do this all the time. Imagine Tour de France or Ironman. Comp- you know, they are really pushing their body into discomfort and keeping there for a long time, we see in those individuals with their pain tolerance threshold, that line on the y-axis we talked about last time is much higher than the average person. Yeah, that's so cool because it, so pain can be so subjective, as you know, you know, kind of working with folks, getting their pain level to monitor progress, regression, whatever. And this is one excellent way for um, to objectify it for more research. Yeah, exactly. So what do you do for folks with lower pain pressure threshold that might be more susceptible to chronic pain or have been dealing with chronic pain? I think we should chat a little bit about strategies that have been found to be successful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I think a huge part of it is what we're doing here is education. I think that is probably the baseline level is helping people understand what pain is and what it's not and how, how pain works. And then I think you know, uh, then you start looking at other factors that we know fit into this equation and can promote the development of chronic pain like sleep insufficiency, nutrition, stress, um, breathing, kind of all these things that can go in, can be kind of interventions in with what we, most of, you know, most people are going to associate us as physical therapists with doing exercise. And I think that is the other really big piece that there's a ton of research supporting exercise for chronic pain management, um, especially when you get into like the aerobic exercise areas, you know, studies looking at sustained aerobic exercise, creating neurogenesis in the brain where you grow new neurons. And, you know, I think it's important for people in chronic pain to understand that if you look at just one bout of exercise, that can and often does kind of flare people up. It can make their symptoms worse. But the key is to find the dosages that you can tolerate. Maybe it's only five minutes or something, but you just try to incorporate 
movement and exercise, maybe just starting with going for a walk and you slowly try to build that up over time, or maybe it's aquatic kind of exercise and you just try to increase that volume of movement over time. And if you do that in graded steps, you can work towards desensitizing the system. And I like to tell people, it might not be realistic. If you've had chronic pain for years, it might not be realistic that it totally goes away. Just like we would tell somebody who has panic disorder that maybe you can't make that totally go away, but you can desensitize those circuits and make it so that they don't fire so easily with these kind of graded exposure um, treatment strategies. So you've got bringing down like your baseline nervous system level so that you're living in a calm state by making sure you've got good nutrition, good sleep, as low stress as possible. Um, I know that people are working with different scenarios in their life that can make this challenging, but you address what you can. Um, and then you start to learn what types of input can influence pain so that you have some control over it. And then you start to do graded movement exposure and it doesn't have to be a then 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 a sequential thing you can be working on all these things at the same time sure and i think people it's helpful to remember too that the exercise doesn't have to be doesn't have to be incredibly specific to where you have pain i mean chronic low back pain for instance walking programs have just as good evidence in many cases as these really specific therapeutic exercise programs that address you know your core and your actual low back so i think a lot of times it's helpful to do both. It's not like, you know, in studies they're just doing either or. But it might be helpful for people to know that if, you know, you see all these PT exercises for the back and they just tend to flare you up, then maybe just start a walking program. Just start there. Like, just try to find some movement that puts you in kind of, helps you get into kind of that relaxed state and allows get outside and walk. I mean, I think it can just be something as simple as that. It doesn't have to be really complicated exercises. Yeah, Absolutely. I was just looking at some of those articles you were talking about as far as walking, you know, walking was just as good, as you said, as specific PT exercises. You know, sometimes research is like, well, is it because they didn't identify the proper exercise for each individual patient? Is it because, you know, so there's, this is not to say don't, you know, try some specific exercises for your condition. But as you said, if it's not helping or if it's flaring up or... Even better, in addition, get outside, get some aerobic exercise, get some fresh air, get a change in scenery. Do you know if there's exactly. a magic, like an ideal number of steps? I feel like I read somewhere 8,000 steps a day is like the magic number for significant decrease in risk factor of back pain and a few other things. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, I haven't seen, I mean, I know the 8,000 and 10,000 steps gets mentioned a lot. Um, I know Peter Atia, who does a big health podcast, was talking about really the cardiovascular disease and mortality, and it was like anything above 3,500 steps just had this hugely positive effect, and it just kind of kept getting more and more until you got like up to 17,000 steps. But I think, you know, I just have a simple like tracker kind of watch that I really only have just to uh, put an objective number on my steps each day in. I think during COVID, this probably happened to a lot of us. I just was way more sedentary, and I realized that, wow, I was only having 2,000 steps or something a day, and to have a piece of data like that that just you it motivates you to get out there and get those steps. It's But uh, I know for me, if I'm sitting too much in the day, my back starts to hurt, my hips start to hurt, and movement is such a powerful modulator of pain, and I think, you know, like we were talking about, just the general exercise, and then if you've got some adding in some of the more, um, the exercises that kind of target area more specifically, that's the best of both worlds, kind of put a little bit of those together and 
and it can make a huge difference. It doesn't have to be a huge amount of time. You can break it up into chunks throughout the day. It doesn't have to be one long session. It's just about kind of almost that total movement volume in the day. And if you can't get in the 3,500 to 8,000 steps, like don't feel like then nothing's worth it. Like any little bit you do that is more than sitting on the couch is so much better than sitting on the couch or in your desk chair, you know, or or in your gaming chair, whatever you end up doing. Um, But it is helpful to prioritize that. And I think that that helps kind of re, you're moving in your body. So now your brain's experiencing pain-free or at least movement, even if it's not pain-free. And now you can start to rewire these these areas of the brain. So in section one, we brought up the fact that there are several areas in the brain that light up in response to a pain experience and that it can be very individual. But there are nine sections that are very common um, in everybody, and then they, they kind of spiderweb out to other individual sections. <clears throat> Excuse me, but you have your the nine key areas that tend to get busy in all brains during a pain experience are your premortar cortex. This is where you get planning and prepare for movement. The cingulate cortex, which is what focuses on um, concentration and focusing. Your prefrontal cortex, which is involved in problem solving, memory, and numbers. Um, so analytical stuff. <clears throat> your amygdala, which is a response for fear, fear conditioning, addiction. Your sensory cortex, which is responsible for identifying where sensations are coming from. Your hypothalamus and your thalamus, which is responsible for the stress response, autonomic regulation, motivation, what and how much we eat. Your cerebellum, which is responsible for your balance. Your hippocampus, which is memory and spatial recognition, fear conditioning. Your spinal cord, um, which provides gating, meaning it provides kind of the bouncer in the party to determine whether pain signal gets up to the brain or not. And the reason I bring these up is if you can stimulate these areas of the body in other ways, then you keep them working well and functional um, in the midst of some dysfunction going on. And also, if you're suffering from chronic pain, now all of these things are kind of busy in a pain meeting. And so you might have decreased memory, decreased focus, you know, decreased willpower with eating. So it explains some of the struggles that folks with chronic pain have because all these other executive areas are kind of busy dealing with chronic pain. Yeah, so true. That's a great summary of all those areas. And I think it's so true if you can, you know, when you have a chronic pain issue going on, those areas, are, like you said, they're, they're kind of in this meeting and they're, they're having to sort out, you know, and create this pain experience and, and you know, figure out how to handle um, the information that's coming into the brain and if you can figure out ways to sort of decrease activity in those areas or maybe uh, or maybe activate them with things that are different from what triggers your pain, that can be ways to sort of hack into the system. You know, I mean, one that we see a lot recently is with the amygdala, with that fear center where, you know, Andrew Huberman, who's this neuroscientist at Stanford that's become really popular recently, looks a lot at uh, visual systems, visual neuroscience and one of the things they found is that, again, going for a walk, if you go for a walk in a safe environment, your eyes do this sort of horizontal gaze, uh, sort of movement from side to side, and they found that that can actually turn down activity in your amygdala. And so I think it's another way that maybe you hack chronic pain besides just the movement and triggering your sensory and motor fibers that maybe you've got back pain, maybe you're triggering those just with moving but maybe you're also turning down that amygdala and maybe you've got kind of a heightened fear response and that's contributing to your chronic pain. And 
maybe going for the walk not only helps from a movement system standpoint, but maybe it also kind of helps turn down that amygdala. You mentioned before that your your parents are in psychotherapy. Have you used any of their tools that you can share with us that somebody at home can start implementing? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, my mom is uh, is a psychiatric nurse practitioner, so a lot of it's more medical-based. So uh, for me, it's really helpful as a practitioner just in seeing um, how she listens and uh, she's a, uh, her ability to kind of empathize with people is one of the best I've ever seen. So she's great in the person-to-person encounters. Um you know, but I think a lot of what she would recommend would be these sort of um, almost like strategies to help encourage relaxation to kind of boost, you know, that parasympathetic system, that part of your nervous system to try and help that system sort of ramp up its activity and ultimately calm you down. So, you know, I think a lot of it is, you know, some of these things that help you kind of get into these mindfulness states, maybe it's breathing, maybe it's a, a full-on kind of meditation. Experience. I think a lot of us just don't take the time. Sometimes you're just taking the time to sit for 10 or 15 minutes and just like close your eyes and be present in that moment. And I think even just something like that can be really powerful in sure. conjunction with, you know, the movement intervention, movement ideas we've talked about. Perfect. So movement. And then I have one more before we sign off. One that I like is like a body scan, so like a progressive relaxation from your toes all the way up, um, not just musculoskeletal, but also organs. But rather than just being in awareness there, say, I love my toes, I love my toenails, I love my ankles, and uh, I kind of stole this from a meditation that I found online, and realized that just having gratitude for each and every body part was super powerful. Big time. What you tell your brain, you're telling your brain those thoughts, and that can change your experience of how you feel that's so powerful well tom can you share uh with the listeners how they might be able to find you and uh all you share so much information on social media i'd love to send everybody your way if they have any more questions or at least to observe and learn from your experience more and maybe even have access yeah. to your book you know my accounts are all kind of orthopedic physical therapy in nature so they're the common problems that we all get and so i kind of share exercises and strategies but it's at Rehab Science on Instagram, um, YouTube, and at Rehab Science on Facebook. And then, like you said, I have this book that's coming out May 30th. And it's essentially what I've been doing on my social media, but a more comprehensive version. So ha- the first 10 chapters of the book are about these things we're talking about, pain and injury science. And then the second half of the book are all rehab programs. So right. if you have tennis elbow, you can go to that program and look at it. You've got low back pain and it's pictures of me doing the exercises. So really a resource that was meant to help people learn about pain injury and then some things they can apply right away. So that right book on. is called Rehab Science, How to Overcome Pain and Heal from Injury. Thank you so much, Tom. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This is awesome. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye.